Wade, who is uh, going to be delivering another uh, lecture um, later on. And um, please remind him that I was always his senior by one year, and I remain his senior by one year. So don't let him give me any grief. Um, I'm going to become, I'm the medical student clerkship uh, um, director as well. So uh, we had a chance to meet yesterday, the group of us with uh, EMIG. We have a lot of uh, outstanding medical students. We're hoping to get some up there. And then uh, hopefully as, as our uh, partnership with UCI grows, uh, we'll, we'll become a little bit more of a regular fixture down here. Of course, that's based on your assessment of our lecture delivery skills. Uh, anybody work last night, a night shift? One? Okay, so he's probably the only That's good. Yeah, so I'm not going to wake him up when he falls asleep. The other folks that not off, I'll know why. I'll change my lecture delivery style. So let's see if this works. Okay. So I want to review some of the objectives. Um, I think I have to point at the... Uh, maybe there's no objectives today. There we go. So uh, when it comes to um, splints in general, you want to get a pertinent history, mechanism of injury, um, physical exam. Uh, we'll review and brief some of the imaging uh, that you might consider, some of the fracture types that are out there. We'll talk about analgesia, consulting orthopedics, and we'll talk about reimbursement and coding. Throughout the, mixture, uh, throughout the slides uh, for all the presentations, there's going to be some... Uh, Revelant, maybe irrelevant references to St. Valentine's Day, to um, the orthopedic colleagues. Um, we're, everyone's fair game. Uh, three of us are from Chicago, so the St. Valentine's Day reference might be referencing more St. Valentine's Day massacre. So, But, yeah, here, here's the junior resident I was talking about before, Dr. Spade. Okay. <laughs> See, he's doing some stuff for me still. Okay, good. That's our facility. Um, it's our, our newest wing, uh, so we just uh, recently completed construction. We're about a uh, 82,000 visit a year emergency department. We have 39 beds, um, and so we keep pretty busy. I think we give uh, uh, have a very good community experience, um, and uh, it's a uh, it, it should be a fertile um, training ground for future residents. So the important history to consider is. The mechanism of injury, there are some things associated with certain fractures, certain dislocations that um, will help you determine just off the bat uh, what, what kind of splinting you're looking at. So an example might be seizure when you're looking for, post, for uh, shoulder dislocation. Seizures and electrical shocks uh, make people prone to posterior shoulder dislocation. That's the classical board question. Fall and outstretched hand might be a Collie's fracture. Any type of fall, jump, uh, parachute injury. Uh, we don't do a whole lot of parachuting out in Visalia, but parachute injury, you're looking for the uh, calcaneal combined with a vertebral compression fracture. Um, and then general history. You have to keep in mind you're not just treating the fracture, but you're thinking ahead. Um, what, uh, what type of medication is this person, would I be able to use? Am I going to be able to use uh, conscious sedation, procedural sedation, or do I need to stick with local? There's a couple, uh, a couple of, you need to have a couple of uh, approaches, both for um, reductions, both for preparing for reductions, for splinting. Uh, all that uh, plays into how you're going to approach the patient. And then uh, the other um, component for general uh, history is are you looking, looking at concurrent, concomitant morbidities? So are they going to be prone for any uh, post-reduction, post-splinting infection, skin breakdown? So it's, it's more than just focusing on the, on the injury. Uh, physical exam, you want to be a little bit specific, not just to the injury, but is their distal neurovascular intact, is their circulatory status intact, and what's their range of motion, uh, what's their weight-bearing status. So it's not uncommon. The more you do that, you'll see that uh, the x-ray, no x-ray does not equate to no fret. No positive x-ray often doesn't equate to uh, no findings. So somebody came in weight-bearing prior to their injury, and now they're non-weight-bearing, don't consider pursuing it with a CAT scan, a pelvis fracture, a hip fracture. Not uncommon that uh, you'll, uh, you'll have a normal, ch normal, ch normal plane films. When you pursue it with a, with a CT because they can't wait for that's when you come with the, uh, the occult fracture. Um, some basics, we're looking always uh, one joint above, one joint below, capture it. And then uh, pre and post reduction films. There, uh, some flexibility with that if it's somebody with their current shoulder dislocations. I don't know how it is here, but you may decide not to do any films, uh, or at least just one film. Um, and then the non-important, uh, I should say the 
important non-injury specific data is so you're looking at anxiety levels you're looking at the patient anxiety levels maybe you're looking at the parental anxiety levels maybe you're looking at the nursing anxiety levels and maybe looking at the flow of the department anxiety levels so all those play into how are you going to best manage this patient uh, you have different target audiences it's not uh, not always just the same not always just the patient um, so we reviewed this already uh, imaging basics Consider comparison views, especially for the kids, and we touched on this. No, uh, negative x-ray does not mean no fracture. So here's our first attempt at breaking things up. So does anybody know the answer to this one? Why do anesthesiologists take an instant dislike to orthopedic surgeons? No, no takers. I'm surprised. It saves time. <laughs> Any orthopedic surgeons? Okay, good. All right. They wouldn't understand anyway. Uh, so a basic review of the fracture types um, and with some <coughs> photos. You should be all pretty familiar with these. It just helps you to talk the same language with your orthopedic colleagues. Um, you could either write to them in crayon or you could use the same <laughs> terminology and that way we'll be on the same page. Um, so again, we talked to pictures of open versus closed fractures and all these have implication in terms of long-term morbidity and also your treatment approach. Use a third, proximal third, middle third, distal third when you're on the phone. Describe. You, you have PACS here, PAC system, digital, yeah. So, But it just helps when you're talking the same language as the orthopods. Uh, orientation of the fracture line, display, degree of displacement, separation of the fracture fragments. Oh, seem to have, okay. Any shortening, angulation, rotational component. Okay. Another orthopedic human. So what's the difference between a rhinoceros and an orthopedic surgeon? Any takers on this one? The number of chromosomes they have. No, let's not insult the rhinoceros here. Um, ready? Here we go. There's a rhinoceros. Okay. So, so going through some of the fracture types, this is... Uh, this one is obvious. I think we could all pick up on this. This is or an open fracture. But some are going to be more subtle. And so what you're looking for is if you come across an injury and you just, there's blood or there's what looks like a tiny inconsequential laceration that's near the fracture, basically you have to assume that's where the bone went through and then it came back. It's an open fracture to you prove otherwise. We had some discussion last night and uh, orthopedic surgeons are getting less aggressive about taking the washout. But the onus, you want to put the onus on your consultant. You know, I've got an open fracture, recommending washout, they need to come down and see the injury and, and then make the call. And uh, anytime you talk about orthopedic literature, well that's an instant humorous aside. So this was a true article, Are Orthopedic Surgeons Gorillas? Um, and the, the short of it was that um, they, uh, they felt, uh, they, 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 one of the aspects they looked at was comparing hand size. So the conclusion was that they're not gorillas, and the second conclusion was it's very difficult to measure the hand size of a gorilla. So, done. <laughs> Yes, yes. So um, I'm really, uh, there's a, analgesia, the, the main thing for just about every condition you treat in the department, abdominal pain, chest pain, orthopedic injury, it's, it's aggressive pain control. Now, it's not a carte blanche uh, if, for patients that have issues with pain medication, but really we, you know, traditionally the studies have all kind of lambasted us for oligoanalgesia, but we, Setting the, the tone of the, of, the, of the visit, allowing you to, to manage the rest of the, of the visit for the patient, you want to get on top of their pain as rapid as you can. So what are some of the agents that you use here? I'm just curious. Or let me put it this way. Is there anything that uh, anesthesia or higher up in the hierarchies don't allow you to use in terms of medications? No. No. You've got a very good relationship or you haven't been able to... Yeah, we don't have a scavenger system either. Okay. We have a good relationship. It's taken some work, but we have access. Okay. One of the okay. I mean, for pain control, we don't have. That's actually one thing we don't have. We don't have yet. 
Yeah, it's and it works for certain patients. It's it's a godsend. I mean, we we've been lucky enough. We've got a very good relationship with anesthesia, and, and I'm on PNT and have been on there for a number of years. And it really helps to be there um, to, to 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 get your voice heard. Uh, one of the things we've been using lately is actually uh, um, nasally um, uh, nebulized fentanyl, and that's advanced. So you've been using okay, it. It's just outstanding. So for the kids, no IVs, and it just gets it in there. Um, uh, what's your, I'm just curious again, maybe more faculty director. Do you have a, a formal NPO policy? We do, but we can always use, thanks to Christy who pushed this, we can always use the E exception. You can always see or argue emergent, so we can skirt this one if we yeah. have to. Yeah. But it's usually for adults, six hours for sol solids, I think is the number. I, mean, I don't remember the exact number because yeah. we can use the E code to kind of get around things. Yeah, what, what was interesting is that I, uh, I um, went and looked to see what I could find. What's what? 1940s OB of literature. Is that was, I couldn't find. I didn't go that far back. From the 40s, they basically all the MPO stuff. Yeah. It's, yeah. But it, theoretically, it's it horrific. actually makes things worse uh -huh. to be NPO yeah. because you're increasing the secretion yeah. of your gastric acid. Yeah. yeah. What what the recent what I found recently just in case it doesn't sound like you would have any pushback but it's from March uh, of of, the, of 2011 it's an it's anesthesiology I've got the volume and issue number uh, basically it's category D the, the evidence is category D there's absolutely no support that uh, having your Big Mac on your way to your fracture and coming down here is going to put you at risk increased risk for for uh, uh, emesis and for uh, for uh, pulmonary aspiration, so it's it's amazing. There's just no data support, but, but we do have a very strict NPO yeah. policy. Yeah, despite, the despite that, but you have to use the E exception. Interesting. E for emergency, yeah. so if you put like yeah. we only do generally ASA one and two, so yeah. we put ASA one E. But I would only do that if it was a life or limb threatening situation. Yeah. Otherwise, I just explain to the parents, for example, we have to wait until it's safe. Really. Oh. Yeah, I mean, there's no evidence to support waiting at all. I mean, that's I, the, the, right that you guys, yeah, we, yeah, so that's it's category D evidence. So I thought that was pretty interesting. Okay, so again, we talked about this before. So for some people, you, you can't, you can't or are unable to use uh, um, that aggressive. Uh, so know your hematoma blocks. Uh, um, sounds like you guys are really on board. Uh, amazingly, ultrasound fast out. So I just kind of learned the um, uh, femoral nerve block under ultrasound guidance. So I mean, there's just an incredible amount of alternatives to just uh, one or two medicines. You really need to know different techniques. Um, it's my Chicago background. Does anybody know what the origin of uh, a Mickey fin? What a Mickey fin is? It's what? Premedication yeah. procedure. <laughs> yeah. It, so Mickey Finn was it was actually a bartender in Chicago, and uh, he had the uh, um, uh, the uh, uh, establishment girls would slip uh, chlorohydrate into the drinks of some of the uh, folks they thought might be easy pickings. There uh, and then they're compromised, brought out to the alley, and relieved of any excess cash they might be carrying. So that's what a Mickey Finn is: slipping somebody a Mickey Finn. So another trivia question regarding St. Valentine's. Does anybody know what, uh, why there was a St. Valentine's Day massacre or a little bit about it? Anybody, anybody from Chicago or the Midwest out here? Oh, I spent four years in a day there, but I don't know the story. So. Okay. It's an interesting story. So what it was, it was the uh, Italian game. That's Al Capone. It was a retaliatory strike against the Irish game. That's the Moran gang. And uh, seven victims. Um, and, uh, and there was a dog that was shot too, but the dog survived. <laughs> and there was another survivor, uh, one of Moran's gang. He survived for uh, three hours with 14 bullet wounds. And when they asked him, who shot you? He said, nobody shot me. That's, that's good old time mafia for you. They, they took it to the grave with them. Right. So, I, I don't think I skipped. Let me just do this again, sorry. Okay. So, coding, um, it's, uh, as you get through your careers you, and you start to get out, you realize no, you know, no margin, no money generated, no mission, and, and your facility doesn't like you and your facility closes eventually. So there are certain coding guidelines that you have to put in place uh, for uh, 
splint care. And one of them is what's your follow-up, or what they call restorative care. And there's three levels, so you can imagine that minimum to maximal charges. So you're either documenting, you did the initial care with no reduction, so that might be a, a, um, a strain, and you're putting somebody in a strap or, sl or a sling or swath. And then you do the reduction, and whether or not you have a splinter strap with it, but you're having them follow up with orthopedic surgery, so you're not delivering the full restorative care. And then the last level is uh, you've done the reduction. I can't imagine why you wouldn't be splinting them. Splinting them, and then uh, your follow-up period is after 72 hours. So again, different levels. It's the Medicare, which all the private space are uh, payment on, the Medicare game. And you just have to be cognizant of that as you evolve through your career. So uh, I thought, uh, what did I think the description was, big hand, sloping forehead, uh, small cerebral space. Uh, here's your orthopedic surgeon consult. So, so when do you consult uh, orthopedics? So compartment syndrome, irreducible injuries, circulatory compromise, and I think the open fracture. Open fracture is the last one. Another shot, different entrance uh, of, our, of our hospital. And with that, I'm going to introduce, uh, I'm going to leave that as a teaser. Dr. James is going to come up now. I'm going to take over for me. Can I ask so, you one question? Oh, yeah, sure. Do you ever consult orthopedics with the intent that um, reimbursement or, or, or the patient might need an ORIF, so you were, you're hoping that they might take responsibility for the patient and admit them for a surgery? Does that ever happen in your shop? Um, so in other words, you consult them uh, not because they need an emergent, mm -hmm. any of those three things that you described in your lecture, but you're hoping that they will admit them and fix the fracture. Because you're worried about follow-up, maybe? Yes. Lack of access? Yes. Um, there is certainly, uh, um, when you're in a situation where you worry about follow-up, you have to be more aggressive. Now, in our hospital, they, never, they don't get admitted to the um, specialty service. It always falls to a hospitalist or a pediatric hospitalist. Um, and I think there, there probably are a few instances where you can get more aggressive and do that. Most of the time, though, the way the, the call schedule is structured, and every once in a while they try to wheeze a lot of it, but for most cases, if they're on call when the injury happens, they're kind of obligated for that one visit afterwards. So you stabilize them, and then they follow up in the orthopedic surgeon's office, and they, get, they, they either um, get what, needed, what needs to be done, or they get set up for what needs to be done. So it's rare that we actually have to admit somebody just to ensure they get orthopedic surgery. I don't know. Any feedback from other colleagues? It happens, but I don't think it's as, as prevalent as one might think. So before I introduce Dr. James, I kind of blazed through some stuff. Any questions at all? All right. Okay. Dr. James, you're up. You didn't do it. I didn't do it? Oh, what's this? What's this? Attack. What? Oh, an answer. Oh, yeah. It's, at this, no, no. I don't want to. No, 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 no. I think I do. I need your little microphone. Yes, you do. So Sydney is definitely more the hands-on guy in terms of uh, applying the, the splints. Um, so you're definitely going to benefit from some of uh, this practical knowledge. I think you're good, buddy. All right, I'm good. Um, so again, those of you who don't know me, my name is uh, Sidney James. Uh, I'm one of the new core faculty there at Cuya uh, Delta. Excited to be a part of that group. Uh, my specific role is going to be uh, director of uh, ED ultrasound in terms of resident medical student education. So I'm excited uh, about that opportunity. And I'm also excited about the opportunity to get a chance to work with uh, Dr. Fox, who's pretty well known down here and uh, getting hold of some of his stuff to help us establish a really great, you know, ultrasound curriculum there for our uh, residents and medical students. Um, just a little bit more about me. Uh, I grew up in the Central Valley area. Uh, currently, I live in Clovis, which is just a bedroom community just outside of Fresno, uh, near Fresno State University. So um, did my residency in Fresno at the UCSF Fresno. In fact, uh, Dr. Eric Schmidt, who's going to be talking to you, Shortly, he was one of my classmates, and um, for those of you who know Chad Kawaji, he was actually my uh, one-year senior resident, so <laughs> I don't know if I should claim that or not, but uh, anyway. Um, so kind of in the spirit of uh, Valentine's Day, here's just a little uh, you know, mind trivia here. Does chocolate consumption really reduce uh, cardiometabolic disorders? What do you think? I hope so. 
Absolutely. So chocolate's in. So yeah, don't feel bad about uh, eating any of the Valentine's Day chocolate. Uh, eat plenty of it, as much as you want. Uh, you're helping your heart. So yeah, 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 yeah. So, so kind of my objectives, uh, part of the lecture, again, I'm going to do a little bit more of the practical hands-on uh, stuff in terms of, you know, different splint types, techniques, etc. I'm going to actually use Josh uh, to help me do a demonstration. Uh, we'll do a couple of just basic types, and then hopefully we'll have a little bit of time we can just break up and, um, and maybe partners or something, have everybody at least maybe do one or two just quick splints just so you can get kind of the feel, the idea. Um, I'm not sure everybody's background as to whether or not you've had ortho rotations or clinics. I'm sure you probably have at some point. But let's uh, go ahead and uh, take a little bit of time to do that. Uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about the uh, post-splint documentation. I think uh, John covered that a little bit uh, in terms of coding and billing. Uh, we'll go over a few of the specific injuries and splint types. I'm sure you probably ran into that problem from time to time in the ED. I got this you know, displaced, uh, you know, ulnar fracture, what type of splint should I use? We'll cover a few of those things. Um, talk a little bit about the complications and, of course, uh, summarize and uh, use Josh for some uh, demonstration. Um, so splint, kind of introducing uh, the topic here. Basically, you know, in the emergency room, you know, the, you know, our idea of splinting is to provide, you know, a temporary sort of immobilization to, to help you know, temporarily stabilize a fracture, you know, pain control, swelling, you know, we want to make sure we don't uh, increase an injury by, by not immobilize something and, and, you know, having a piece of bone or something, uh, you know, shear a vessel or nerve or anything like that. So um, it's definitely applicable in the ED. And, um, you know, the splints that we put on are very effective. Uh, they do a really nice job at uh, providing a temporary mobilization until we can get um, adequate follow-up with uh, our orthopedist colleagues and formal casting, things like that. Um, in fact, if you look, you know, through some of the splint types, uh, uh, I know the orthopedic literature isn't great, but uh, some of the splints have actually been, you know, shown to be as effective as, you know, formal casting. Um, and just a little bit of a personal experience for me, I had a, a comminuted ulnar fracture about uh, two years ago from a football playing accident. And, um, you know, I splinted it the whole time. It took about 10 to 12 weeks to heal, uh, but it healed very nicely without any formal casting. And the good part of that for me was, hey, I was able to, to work and uh, take the splint off. And uh, got, Dr. Schmidt got described for me a little bit. Uh, <laughs> the good old days. But, no, it's, it's just it's really nice to, to have that ability to be able to take something off. I'm sure a few of us have probably had some broken bones around here, but, uh, yeah, casts are terrible. Stick. What's that? Stick. Uh, yeah. Oh, it's coming up. No, no, no. Well, and kind of getting on to more of my injuries, I guess. Uh, you know, my wife would really be rubbing it in. But uh, I had a scaphoid fracture, too, another football playing incident. Um, and that was kind of brutal. And we'll talk about that just a little bit more because um, I had a pretty uh, interesting uh, injury. It was to the proximal pole. So my orthopod had me in a long arm cast for a little scaphoid fracture for three months. So, yeah, but uh, we'll, we'll talk a little bit that, about that more when we get there, but... Uh, Is that the rhinoceros? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, so what are some of the, you know, complications? Again, casting and ED, we generally don't do that for obvious reasons of, you know, just higher risk, more swelling, you know, more, you know, episodes of compartment syndrome. Um, oftentimes, uh, fractures tend to have soft tissue injuries, there's infections. Uh, things like that, that it's just, you know, again, it's easier to just splint, it's safer, again, it allows for, for swelling, et cetera, et cetera. Um, yeah, I don't think we'll talk too much about the, the burn part of things, but uh, it's just, you know, in, in, when we get to the actual putting on the splints, we'll talk a little bit about, you know, the water temperature and burns and stuff like that. But, um, you know, some of the complications, ischemia, you know, you just, uh, you know, you get a splint on that's too tight. Um, or if, you know, for some reason you did cast something, you get it on too tight, you know, again, your risk of ischemia, compartment syndrome, those sorts of things goes up. Um, you know, infection, of course, like we said, is always a complication. So anytime you have a cut, you're going to put a splint over it, make sure you clean it, you know, debride it. Uh, if you need to suture or repair it, whatever you need to do, uh, put a little bit of zero floor on bacitracin, whatever, you know, you guys have here. Uh, to do that stuff would be great. 
Um, splitting material, just um, what, what type do you guys use here? Do you use the ortho glass or do you guys have the plaster? Both. Oh, yeah, both. Okay, is there certain providers have preference for, for one or the other? How do you guys decide? You know, most often the tech. Yeah, yeah. Mostly the tech kind of figures yeah. out which one to apply at the time. Okay. Yeah. okay. I prefer plaster for like. Like a colleague's fracture, I'd put plaster, whereas like a short leg posterior spine, I'd put north glass. So. Actually, okay. I think we should ask our ex-tech, Josh, what, uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, what, how is it picked? Because you were here when we went through the whole thing, getting it stock, so. Yeah, I mean, in traumas, you know, we always use plaster, but I think trauma liked it better. I liked it better. Um, you know, it was dried quicker, it was easier uh, to mold. Um, now, you know, we use just for the glass, um, you know, my hair now. Um, I like it. Yeah, it's not as messy. It's easier. Yeah, I see uh, patients come back and I don't see a whole lot of it, but we were just talking about it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Padding and stuff like that because with the uh, plaster, we used to pad the heck out of it, you know, um, and we don't do that with the fiberglass. Uh, it seems to work okay. Yeah. No, I grew up, uh, you know, on, on plaster, and that, that's still my preference. It wasn't until I got to Cui Delta when we had, you know, this stuff. I'm like, what is that, you know, sort of thing. But, um, you know, and seeing it in, in use, it's it's pretty good. It's pretty fast, uh, fast drying. Uh, like Josh says, very clean. Uh, but, again, I d tend to fall back to what I was trained with. I really like the, the plastering, and it's just more of my own personal preference. Um, if you're going to use plaster, definitely you want to make sure you have these things. You want some stockinette. And you want plenty of padding, the web rail. So you want to make sure that uh, that that's uh, done correctly, um, especially over you know bony prominences, uh, joints, things like that. You want to make sure there's plenty of padding. And I would argue that even if you're using the orthoglass, even those are pre-padded, you probably should be using a little bit of web rail or something on some of those uh, you know bony prominent areas just to decrease the risk of you know pressure sores, uh, things like that. Um, and you guys, as part of the curriculum here, do you actually do an ortho rotation where you go like splint clinic, things like that? No. Okay. So reductions and, okay. So everything's done pretty much. Area for improvement for the program. Okay, all right, okay. All right. Um, so again, uh, you know, getting back to the, you know, plaster of Paris, um, depending on what, what source you read, uh, most uh, would recommend uh, for like upper extremity injuries at least you know, kind of 10 to 12 layers when you start talking about lower extremity legs, you know, posterior long leg, uh, up to 15 or maybe even 18, uh, just to help with strength and stability. And also what kind of factors in that a little bit too is the size of the patient. You know, you got somebody, you know, really big, uh, you know, big legs, big strong guy that uh, there's going to be a lot of stress on the particular splint. You probably want to use a few more rolls, but, you know, there's no real magic to it. You just want to make sure it's strong enough. Uh, that's going to give you adequate uh, mobilization. Um, so, yeah, we don't have any plaster really demonstrate here, so when we get to it, we'll just we'll go over the uh, orthoglass part of it. But um, generally, whenever you're using plaster, again, you, you probably have the rolls or the strips here, I, I would imagine, correct, or both? Yeah, so you want to make sure you have your, your water. Your water is at room temperature. Um, some people will heat the water up just a little bit, uh, a little bit of warm water out of the faucet. You know, when you read about it, it tends to cause sometimes quite an exothermic reaction, and it can produce burns. I've never seen it produce one, but um, you know, if I was telling you how to do it uh, in a lecture like this, I would say just use uh, ta cold tap water. So um, it takes a little bit longer to set up, but it, but it's fine. Um, let's move on a bit here. Uh, splinting principles, um, so when you're going to make a splint, obviously you want to, you know, measure the length of the splint on both sides, like you're doing a sugar tong. Uh, you want to get all that set up ahead of time, you know, cut your stockinette, get your web roll ready if you're using plaster, but um, the last thing you want to do is, you know, the patient's all ready to go, you got the fracture reduced, you're ready to put the splint on, and oh yeah, let's measure it and cut it while you're in the middle of holding somebody's, you know, collie's fracture that you just reduced, and, you know, obviously can be a little bit painful. Again, we talked a little bit about the uh, room temperature part of things. Um, I think John touched on that a little bit. Uh, just make sure that, uh, you know, after you put a splint on or the tech does, you go look at it, you know, make sure the finger's not blue or something. Uh, 
You know, fortunately, sometimes people don't. Splints do come back. Uh, you know, people do have complications. So just make sure you take a peek. And then, obviously, for the uh, financial billing part of it, that we can document that and, and get reimbursed for the entire procedure. I, I don't think you can get reimbursed if you don't do that, correct? Right. You have to yeah. have that note on. Yeah. So that's a very important part of it. So let's talk a little bit about uh, some of the specific injuries and splint types. Um, anybody here know how you get a mallet finger? Catching a football like this? Yeah, it's usually a jam type injury. Uh, you, yeah, you, you injure the extensor uh, tendon there right over the distal tuft. It can be associated with a tough fracture. Um, but that's one of the splint types we'll talk about. Uh, boutonniere deformity, you injure your uh, central tendon or your, your hood there. You can develop that if you're not careful and get that splinted right. And then, of course, your swan neck deformity, which you know, can be sort of an extension of a, uh, an improperly treated mallet fracture. Um, stuff might pop up on boards, I don't know, or in service exams. So you might want to <laughs> remember the, the little bit of the physiology there with those. But just um, there are some injuries where you can get a little hyperflexion of the uh, PIP there and get an acute swan neck deformity. I've, I've never seen that personally, but uh, you know I understand it's out there. But most of the the uh, ED application would be from more of an untreated sort of mallet fracture. Somebody comes in and you know they have a deformed finger and say, "Hey, what's up? You know, can you what happened to my finger here, doc?" Um, so if you have a finger dislocation like the one above, um, you know, analgesia is again a part of it. Uh, I tend to use, uh, in most of my orthopedic reductions, a lot of digital blocks and hematoma blocks. I, I find that you can get away with most uh, fracture reductions that way. It's quicker, uh, the patients love it, you know, they don't have to hang around and be, you know, recovered, things like that. But, um, you know, specifically for fingers, you know, typically it'll be a digital block or a thenar block, um, which you know, I don't really talk too much about that technique. But um, just some of the finger splinting devices. Um, if you have a typical sprain or jam finger where you're not really concerned about, you know, necessarily about the uh, tendon type of injuries, you know, it's okay to buddy tape them. Just make sure that you provide adequate padding between. You can see the web roll between the fingers there. Um, you know, you can have a kind of a loose splint, uh, dorsal splint there where you've uh, got kind of a functional flexion. Uh, clearly, you wouldn't want this type of splint for like a mallet finger type injury. Um, with those, you'd want the, the, uh, the distal phalanx splinted in, in kind of full hyperextension, if you will, like this. Um, I don't think, did we bring any of the finger splints, John? Do you know? Okay. Yeah, but basically, if, I'll just show you on my thing. If you have a if you have a mallet type of injury, you know your finger is going to be sort of, you know, hockey stick like that. You want to you want to splint it all the way down to the PIP there, and a little bit of hyperextension. Um, you want to keep it like that. And if you have an injury to where you have may have a swan neck, or, or a boutonniere type deformity where you have your PIP joint, um, that one also you want to splint that in full extension as well. So just you know if you can remember those two things. Um, they'll get you a long way in terms of finger type injuries. And of course, the charge for finger splint is uh, 70 bucks. What's the reimbursement? Well, it depends on your payer, but you no. usually uh, <laughs> the average is somewhere yeah. in our neck of the woods, yeah, 30 percent to 35 percent. But it yeah. pays for the tech to put on the splint. Yeah. So. Well, the, the physician profi is 70 bucks, but the little metal splint is probably 200, I guess. Yeah, there but uh, <laughs> anyway. Um, metacarpal fractures, um, we're going to, I mean, mainly focus on the splinting technique, but just a little bit about those. Um, you know, make sure you do a good job at, you know, trying to reduce those. Uh, consult ortho early if you need to. Um, definitely if there's any, what type of component, what type of component to the uh, um, dislocation would be concerned about. Yeah, any rotational, yeah, zero rotation is tolerated on metacarpal fractures, so, okay. Um, typical splint types for metacarpal, you can do either radial ornal, ulnar gutter splint, depending if you have a, um, you know, four and five uh, metacarpal fracture, you definitely want to go more on the ulnar side of things. If you have two, three, that would be more of kind of a radial 
uh, gutter kind of, they also know it as kind of like a clam digger. Have you guys heard of that terminology at all? Um, where you really want to make sure that uh, MCP joint is at, at 90 degrees and you have good uh, stabilization of the wrist. And uh, we won't, I mean, if we have time, we can practice with a few of these uh, types of splints here, but um, those are the typical type you'd use for your, most of your metacarpal type of fractures. Um, scaphoid fractures, boy, do I know about that, unfortunately. So uh, that's sort of a, a scaphoid waist fracture. You guys can probably see that there, right? Yeah, but the, the problem with the scaphoid fractures is the blood supply and how they heal. Um, the blood flow comes from uh, distal to proximal. So if you have a, a fracture, you know, down here in the proximal segment of the bone, you know, these are where you're going to uh, get your highest incidence of avascular necrosis and, you know, subsequently lead to full carpal collapse and they wind up having to get, you know, surgeries, fusions, things like that, which is no good. Um, but they, yeah, so it's really the blood flow. And, uh, you know, when I talked to my orthopedist about my specific injury, the reason why he was so aggressive is because it was proximal pull. He wanted, you know, no movement. He wanted to make sure I had no supination, pronation, or anything. So that's why he opted for the, the long arm uh, for, for three months. So you go in, you get it taken off, extra, eh, it's looking okay, let's put it back on again. It's like, really? <laughs> but uh, anyway, that was like three months, and then just a, I had a short arm cast for about another month and a half after that, so it was, you know, pretty much from January to like towards the end of May, I was in a cast, you know, for a little skateboard fracture. This seemed ridiculous, so, um, so uh, make sure it's not something we, we definitely want to miss. Um, imaging part of it, so typically what do we do if we're concerned about a scaphoid fracture? Um, you think somebody had a mechanism injury, they fell in their outstretched hand, they have tenderness in the anatomic snuff box, your x-ray is, is negative or equivocal, then you definitely want to put them in a thumb spica. Um, another alternative would be to just, you know, you can CT it, it probably sounds like a little bit of overkill, but um, if you really want to know if there's a fracture there, just CT it, because if CT is negative, you know, more than likely, there's really not a fracture there, and you probably get away without without splinting if you're certain there's no other injuries. But yeah. Are you doing MRIs on these at all? There's been some stuff saying we should probably MR these guys and get them back to early function. We're currently not. But some folks say we should. Yeah, I, I have never MR'd a, a scaphoid fracture. So, there, but yeah. Some people say we should, and I'm going. That's not that's not our world, but no. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. What, what is the actual view that they do for the skateboard view when they do the x-ray? Do you know, like, how the techs do it? I've never... In terms of your... When you ask for a special view to try to view the skateboard, do you know what they actually do with the hand? Uh, I, I don't know the exact... I, I know they take your, you know, your AP view, your, your oblique, mm -hmm. um, and your true lateral, and then they... I, I think it's on the lateral where you really want to see... I don't have a picture of it here, but... Um, you really want to see the carpal bones align, the lunate, um, you know, they call it your three C's. I, I probably should put a picture of that in there, but um, are you guys familiar with that view that I'm talking about where you're looking? You guys have seen a picture of a, of a lunate, uh, you know, or a perilunate dislocation. You guys familiar with the, how they kind of sit, seize one another? Um, you know, that, that view, too, may be able to tip you off as to whether or not there's a, you know, scaphoid fracture, but... Um, Ideally, or, or in practicality, your whole entire wrist joint or articulation is just with your skateboard and lunate because the ulna really doesn't articulate with anything. There's that TFCC, triangular carpal cartilage complex. So this ulnar aspect of your wrist is just cartilage, and your skateboard's kind of holding most of the brunt view. So if you get a normal pain lateral, they're just going to do this. So since the skateboard sits right on top of the radius, on that view, they ride it out. And so they ride the skateboard out this way, so they're going to ulnar deviate your hand so that you can see the full, uh, the full skateboard come out. So if you do this way, you'll notice that the skateboard rides out, as opposed to if you do like this and this, it's going to be sitting right underneath uh, all the rest of the carpal bone. So skateboard view just means normal view is this, and skateboard view is this. And that's it. You'll get a better look at that bone if, if you have an axe. So if you want to order from like triage, hey, somebody hurt their wrist, just order a skateboard view, even if because it's going to give you the full of this and this, but it's also going to give you that. Okay, so just kind of moving on a little bit. I just want to make sure we leave time to do a little practice, but uh, a couple of wrist fractures. You know, distal radius, uh, 
uh, ulnar fractures can be generally splinted with uh, your, your typical sugar tong. And, uh, you know, we'll get to that just here shortly. So basically, uh, with this splint, you're just measuring from the, from the metacarpal heads, you know, going around the elbow and, and, and putting on both sides. Um, if somebody did have, uh, you know, anatomic snuffbox tenderness, you could convert this anathem spike on top of that if you needed to. Um, again, it just, um, anytime you're, you're splinting and you're, you're, you know, immobilizing, you know, just, you, know, you can always tailor any of these to really meet your specific needs. So um, just keep that in mind. There's no just hard set, well, I have to just do a sugar tongue or anything like that. So to mold it and make it immobilize, uh, you know, the, the way you want and that, that fits, like I said, it fits for your particular patient's need. Uh, just a couple of, uh, you know, fracture types there. Um, so what type of uh, splint would be good for um, the uh, both bone fracture there? What? Anybody? Yeah, exactly. Long arm posterior would be a good one for that. Uh, probably a, a double sugar tong, you know, we'll we should look at that a little bit, might be okay, but your long arm posterior is going to be probably your best bet uh, to really eliminate, uh, limit your uh, supination pronation with that one. So, Again, superchondrular fractures too, you definitely want the long arm uh, posterior with that. Um, just an example here of your, your long arm splint. Um, you know, basically you, you um, extend on your ulnar side, um, from your uh, MCP joint, you know, all the way up uh, around the elbow, probably about halfway, you know, towards your uh, proximal humerus there. The important aspect of that is to make sure that the plaster is wide so that the ulnar gutter that you form goes all the way up and covers most of the arm. Because somebody with a fat arm and a thin plaster, it doesn't wrap all the way around enough. Right. It still allow you to, to supinate and pronate, which you don't want to do. Right, right. You don't want you don't want to use two inch on something like that. You probably want four or six inch on pretty pretty good size. Good point. <clears throat> um, double double uh, sugar tongue there. Um, again, it's a really useful splint if you really want to. Uh, you have some more proximal forearm fractures. Uh, you want to limit uh, pronation supination. It's kind of a nice easy. Uh, splint to put on uh, again if you're you know choosing this between that or a long arm posterior I, you know, I don't think there's a, a big difference in terms of you know the immobilization that you're going to get between the two there so. um, what type of uh, dislocation is this anybody yeah interior it's most common right um, as you know, John mentioned earlier, some of the posterior types, uh, you know, associated with seizures, electrical shock injuries, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but uh, what type of splint uh, device do you think we'd use for this? Anybody? Yeah, right. So you would, uh, you know, shoulder mobilizer. Some you could get away with a, you know, simple uh, arm slings, swing and sloth. Uh, some, you know, orthopedists like the figure of eight. Uh, just I. Uh, I think a lot of it has to do with their own specific training. There's, you know, not really any evidence that supports a, you know, a simple arm sling versus swing and slot works any better for, um, you know, shoulder dislocations. But, uh, you can also use these too if you have like a kind of a, you know, mid-shaft humeral fracture just to kind of stabilize that. Lower extremity injuries, just real quickly. I'm just going to kind of fly through this. Uh, just I know we're kind of running short on time. We're going to back things up, but. You know, femoral shaft fractures, obviously you're not going to use this for that, but you'd use a typical hair traction or Sager traction, or, you know, you might even put a Steinman pin in. Do you guys do that here, or do you guys call ortho come down, or, yeah. Does everybody know what a Steinman pin is? No? I probably should have put a... I probably should have put, put a picture in it, but basically it's a, it's a bolt that screws through your proximal tibia. You know, you just get an old-fashioned drill and zzz, right on through. And uh, it allows you to be able to pull traction on that femur to, to um, you know, eliminate a lot of the, you know, the bayonetting problems you get with those uh, to, to provide stabilization for those fractures. But, yeah, it's uh, definitely uh, in the ED scope of practice, and you might uh, wind up doing those in some of the places you work. So it might be something to, to look up. Steinman pin, so... Um, long leg posterior splint, um, typically you'd use this in conjunction. I couldn't find a good picture with a three-sided on there, but 
um, tibial plateau fractures, uh, those sorts of things. You definitely want to mobilize again above and below. Um, so you definitely want to use the long leg with, um, you know, adequate uh, stirrup for your uh, uh, lateral sides there. Where'd you get these charges, by the way? Uh, that was from uh, MBS, uh, our, our billing company, oh, right. which okay. is pretty much uh, in sync with, uh, with uh, Medicare National Center. Now, that's a charge to the patient, or is yeah. that the cost? Yeah. That's the charge. The cost is, and this is just the professional component, the uh, cost is what your time is worth, and then, of course, what they pay is insurance <laughs> versus you know, 25 to 35% in general. Just a picture of a tibial plateau fracture. Knee immobilizer, you guys probably use that a lot. You know, you get uh, various knee injuries, uh, strains, you know, mediolateral collateral ligaments, uh, ACLs, or as we like to call it, internal derangement of the knee, where you're not sure exactly what's going on. So you, you know, put them in a knee immobilizer, put them on crutches, have them be non-weight bearing, etc. Um, very useful splinting device. Um, ooh, yeah. Ouch. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So, what type of splint might we consider for a fracture like that? Yeah. You know, I, I would probably do the uh, three sided posterior short leg, but there's some, you know, orthopurist that would, you know, really probably want you to mobilize the knee joint as well. Um, but I think you could get away with that, if, especially if you're sure there's not a proximal uh, fibular component to that. So. Um. so, so the default principle is that whatever bone is fractured, you immobilize the joint above and below. And below. Yeah. That's yes. the default. You can, yes. If you break that rule, there are certain circumstances like you just described where a short leg splint might be reasonable, but you're not going to go wrong if you do a long leg splint in this that immobilizes the knee joint as well. I'm curious how you would handle this at your, like, we would call ortho for something like this because of the syndesmosis being widened and you'd want to make sure that you've got good reduction of that. I want to, what would you do in the community? You would just... Oh, I would, I would reduce it and, uh, and split them up and I would call ortho and make, you know, make sure I have good adequate follow-up, especially with the syndesmosis problem, but yeah. It, uh, yeah, that's what you do. But if you splinted this in place, it would be, I can't see it too well, but there's no, you splint this in place, I mean, it's not a lot to um, yeah. I guess I can't really see it well enough to tell, but but even if the malleoli are broken, as long as you put the talus in the anatomic position, then it should be fine. Right, right. So, but, uh, I think there's a lot of, at least within the resident, among the residents, I sense that there's a lot of anxiety. Like, what would you do? Well, basically, if it's straight, you put it in a splint. Yes. And you put it on weight bearing. There's no, there's no magic right. for most yes. of this. It's right. really quite simple. Yeah. A lot of anxiety about well, how would I reduce this? So you pull out it until it's straight. Right. You're good. Yeah. 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 Yep. No, I would agree with that. Most things are pretty fairly easily reduced. Uh, like I said, put it straight, put it in a splint. Um, if you can't put it straight, then you got to call your uh, orthopedist to come help you. Then uh, that happens. So just. Yeah, just, uh, you know, make sure that you've given it a good, honest uh, Boy Scouts try whenever you call them because they're not going to be too happy about it half the time. But I don't know about here, but, you know, the expectation from our private orthopods is that we handle this stuff. And, you know, if we get a hip that's out and we can't get in, you know, they're like ticked. They're like, what's wrong with you? You know, and I say, I know, I know you're going to come down and you're going to, you know, put your finger on their toe and their hip's going to fall back into place and I'm going to look like an idiot. You know, and that's usually what happens. They just have different techniques. The other alternative <laughs> is they, you call them and they say, I'll call the OR because I know they need general anesthesia because they trust you. So. <laughs> oh. What are you, what are you trying to say there? Just <laughs> <laughs> in terms of, like, follow-up and things like that as a community doc, if this person doesn't have insurance or something like that, I mean, how do you, you just kind of wish them the best if it's something that needs to get... No, I, no, that's what we talked about yeah. before. They're actually, um, because one of the advantages is that you work with the community orthopods, you know them, they have a pretty structured call arrangement with the hospital, and part of the call arrangement is that that injury occurs when they're on call, even if they don't come in and see the patient, uh, if, uh, they are tagged for the one follow-up visit. Okay. So, yeah, but you're right, that's a concern. Okay. Um, and that's, I mean, and that's why we would call ortho and ours, yeah. is just because 
we have a patient population that doesn't have a lot of follow-up. Yeah. There's no way that they're going to get follow-up within three days unless we kind of call yeah, them. But there's, there's, even in a community setting where the orthopedist is required by medical staff rules or convention to see the patient once, doesn't mean they have to do the surgery, and they often won't. So they'll, they'll own up to their responsibility if you're lucky to see the patient once, and then you'll say, well, the surgery would be $5,000, thank you, and the patient bounces around as they do in Orange County until they go to the county hospital, the district hospital, or the quasi-county hospital, if there isn't one, and they end up on the orthopedic service in the teaching hospital. Unfortunately, that's the way America yeah, treats its unfunded ortho stuff. Yeah. So even if you have a one-visit rule, if it's simple and they can cast it, great, they'll probably do that and finish the care. But if it needs an operation, they'll refer the them back to the private community. Yeah. And, and a lot of them, you know, I found to be pretty helpful. You know, we kind of, you know, rag on them a little bit. But uh, if there's some social circumstances, things like that, sometimes they'll just come in and do it. Uh, since they're on call. And I've had a little bit of luck with that. So that's been good. Um, posterior ankle splint. Again, good for distal tibia, you know, fibula fractures, uh, strains, sprains, you know, those sorts of uh, injuries. Um, pretty simple to put on. Um, and we'll, we'll, uh, man, I wish we had time to demo all these, but we, we don't. Um, but basically, you know, you put the, make sure the foot's straight, you know, 90 degrees, uh, make sure neurovascular status is uh, intact, as we talked about earlier. And um, you're, you're basically putting the splint from the pretty much the base of the fifth metatarsal all the way up uh, to the proximal portion of the calf. So I'm going to move along. I'm getting the, I'm getting the uh, sign of death over there. I'm taking too much time. <laughs> but, uh, so that's a general principle is that you put a posterior mold or a, or a inner gutter splint, and that helps, that prevents extension Sorry. flexion. But then if you need stabilization so it doesn't rotate, you put a stirrup. You put a stirrup, side, right. And that keeps you from supinating, pronating, or in Right. Uh, just a couple of other devices. It's just a basic uh, kind of air, uh, strip splint. You know, if you have a sprain, you want to get back out there and get back in the action, playing basketball, whatever. These these can provide pretty good, uh, you know, kind of temporary stabilization to let you play in a game or or you know do some sort of functional task. Uh, they're pretty good. I've had to use them before, so they work great. Um, in your boot, um, if you have an injury that's that's can be partial weight bearing. Um, a walking boots, you know, definitely a decent idea for some of your, little, you know, four-foot fractures. Not a Lisfranc fracture. You, clearly, those are going to be non-weight bearing. Um, I wasn't going to talk about that, but I said a Lisfranc. Does everybody know what that is? A Lisfranc fracture. Everybody know? Yeah. Okay. It's on the Jeopardy game. Oh, it's on the Jeopardy. So you'll get it. Okay. All right. So uh, Lori will get to that. So remember that Lisfranc fracture. Look it up. It's going to be worth some points later. Um, so just kind of concluding here, I know we, you know, John talked a little bit about the mechanism of injury, physical exam things. Uh, we went over some specific injuries, um, some of the few basic splint types. Again, I would just, you know, remind you, don't get caught up in the, is it a sugar tong, is it a long arm posterior, is it a, you know, double sugar tong, whatever. Um, just make sure you immobilize, you know, again, above and below. Um, when all else fails, it sounds like you have a pretty good ortho department here. I'm sure they'd be happy to to answer simple questions like that for you, or the techs. The techs know a lot uh, about this. So um, what we're going to do now, is there any other questions before we go ahead? I'm thinking of, you know, splinting at the end as we do okay. too, or maybe on the side, just because I need Okay, to sure, sure, sure. Okay, all right. Maybe we'll take a break, go to the bathroom after lunch, right? And then we'll come back in like five minutes. Okay, okay. so I've been officially cut off, so yes. sorry. <laughs> sorry. I got it. So.